It's the Pete Callender Show. With more than 20 years as a reporter and radio host in North Carolina, Pete Callender is helping solve the world's problems one podcast at a time. Because he's a giver. And now, here's Pete. Howdy, what's going on? Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for listening. I do appreciate it. It is the last day of 2020, and I'm not sure how I feel about that. On the one hand, I feel like, yeah, this is kind of good. I'd like to get this one over with. On the other hand, though, it is the year I launched the podcast, went into business for myself, so uh, and haven't gotten fired yet, so that's fantastic. I um, want to thank folks who helped make the show possible, patrons such as Sarah and Frank, Karen, Manuel, Jeff and Nicole, Chris, Matthew, Easy, Daniel, Lisa, Janet, and two of our newest patrons, Grant and David. Thanks so much for uh, supporting the program. And uh, you can go to thepetecalendarshow.com and click on the link that's at the top there if you would like to become a patron, get exclusive content uh, and uh, merchandise as well. The show is also made possible by fantastic businesses like Mattress Man. Do you know that not only do they have showrooms, but you know they have a warehouse and they do blowouts of all sorts of inventory. Uh, like, for example, uh, they've got hybrid mattresses that they're just... Uh, they've got so many of these things, uh, and, you know, they've got the new models coming in, and so they've got a massive sale going on for their hybrid mattresses. Also, they've got the new Judson. This is a new mattress from Restonic. These are the makers of the Biltmore Mattress Collection. Uh, those are the mattresses that are at the Biltmore Estate, the hotel, and the inn over there. And the new Judson uh mattress this is the winner of the consumer best buy digest and women's choice awards now available at mattress man go check out the inventory it's at mattressmanstores.com or go into any of their four locations in Asheville, arden and hendersonville they do ship nationwide so don't worry about that and they have local five-star delivery service a 120-day comfort guarantee the best mattresses at the best prices. Go to mattressmanstores.com. Check it out for yourself and experience the difference at Mattress Man. Buy local and sleep better. Um, so North Carolina has a uh, distribution protocol, a priorities list for who's going to get the vaccine. And uh, as I mentioned the other day, there was all of this commotion about a uh, an employee, a social media employee for uh, the big hospital system down in Charlotte uh, for Atrium. And she posted some picture about how, you know, she scheduled her vaccine appointment. Outrage ensued saying, you know, people were like, how dare you? You're a young person. You're a social media content creator. Uh, so, you, you know, you don't work with patients. And so why are you getting the vaccine before me, basically? Like that's they never said before me. It was always, you know, before somebody else. So there's a lot of moral grandstanding and virtue signaling and preening on this. Um, and the, the employee said, you know, look, as part of my job, I actually go and uh, interact with frontline healthcare workers which makes sense to me. I understand kind of how the PR gig works. So it makes sense if you're in a massive corporate structure like that and your job is to push out, um, you know, content for not just the in-office uh, employee uh, population, but also for people outside of the hospital, uh, then it makes sense. You're going to be talking to people who are on the front lines fighting COVID-19, right? So it makes sense why she might be able to schedule an appointment to get a vaccine. But 
it doesn't matter at this point because Atrium then said, our bad, we were we just threw all the employees into the pool and because uh, they were all healthcare workers. And so, uh, we, okay, fine, we understand you don't want us to do that. And so we'll, uh, we'll cancel all of the vaccine scheduled uh, uh, dosages. And uh, for like these people that are, you know, non-frontline workers, there's like 97 of them. So like they're all canceled and, you know, our bad. Then we get this uh, announcement that they're redoing the entire priorities list for everybody in the state now. So it's not just Atrium, it's everybody. At the COVID briefing, and I'm not going to play any audio from it, um, just because I can give you the details much faster. Um, So North Carolina is changing the vaccine distribution priorities plan, okay? And according to the Associated Press... This paves the way for all adults 75 years or older to pri- to be prioritized under the first phase of distribution, even if they don't have any underlying medical conditions that make them particularly vulnerable. <laughs> well, the underlying condition that makes them particularly vulnerable is that they're over the age of 75, Associated Press. That's kind of the deal. The old folks are getting it and dying from it at way worse rates than everybody else. If only there was a way we could determine who was most susceptible by, like, I don't know, an easy identification system. Anyway, the announcement comes as North Carolina sees a sharp decline in the number of doses it is getting from President Donald Trump's administration. (laughs) That's a sharp decline from the administration. So the administration is giving out the dosages based on population in the states, and the dosages are being um, produced by the private sector. Donald Trump's administration is not producing, manufacturing any kind of vaccine, okay? Just to be clear, Trump is not doing that. You've got Moderna, you've got Pfizer, you've got others that are cranking out these vaccines now, and uh, they're the ones that are making them available, The distribution mechanism is based on population. Those are now going out to the states and uh, the states, it's up to them to determine how to vaccinate people with the dosages. So Pfizer's vaccine was first made available, according to Brian Anderson at the AP, uh, who asks some of the worst questions usually at the press briefings. Anyway, um, he says that the state received nearly 85,000 doses Uh, In the week of December 14th, North Carolina got more than 175,000 doses of Moderna's vaccine the following week. Now, the state expects to get 60,000 weekly doses of each through the end of January. Okay, is it possible that, um, I don't know, that something changed? What changed? Mandy Cohen, the health secretary, said the federal government would be better able to explain the decrease, but she believes it's likely the result of manufacturing and production processes that will slowly ramp up. So, in other words, you pushed out a whole bunch of the vaccines on the front end, and now everybody is trying to figure out, okay, now where do these things go? Because, it's you know, the first rounds are kind of easy to identify because they said they wanted to go to the frontline healthcare workers. Okay, kind of easy to identify those, right? But when you start running out of those people, (laughs) then who do you move to? That's sort of the question. And uh, also, Cohen mentioned this at the briefing as well, that there are problems with the packaging. Not problems, I should say, but the way that the, the vaccines are packaged, think about this, right? 
if you have, let's say, 100 people in your uh, hospital setting that need the vaccine and the Pfizer vaccine is is shipped in packs of 120, what do you do with the other 20? Or what if they come in packs of 80, right? And and that's, that is a challenge. Like, people don't even think of it. I didn't think of it until Cohen was talking about this. And yeah, like, you end up, it's like the hot dogs and the hot dog buns dilemma, right? <laughs> like, one sold in a pack of 16 and one sold in a pack of 12. And so, like, how many do you need to get so you have exactly the same number and it all equals out, right? So all of those things those are challenges. Those are logistical challenges that have to be overcome. The limited supply prompted the state on December 30th to unveil new changes to its sweeping 148-page vaccine distribution plan. Um, I, I I thought it was based on. I thought the change was based on the new recommendations that came out of the CDC's advisory committee. But uh, Brian says that it was because of the limited supply change. But um, okay, but that's not what I heard. Anyway. Um, here are the phases. This is the new plan. So phase one, this is, it's kind of ridiculous. So there should actually be, let me see here. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. There should actually be 11 phases, but that's ridiculous. 11 phases is too much. So they made it four phases, but then they had subgroups in the phases, <laughs> like sub phases. <laughs> Guys, this is, you know, this is not how this is supposed to work. Okay. So here's phase 1A. Phase 1A is healthcare workers fighting COVID-19 and long-term care staff and residents. Okay. Makes sense, right? People on the front lines and people who are in the long-term uh, care facilities and the staff. Okay, so that's phase one. I would call that phase one. Not phase 1A, that's phase one. But then they say phase 1B is adults 75 or older and frontline essential workers. They say there's not enough vaccine for everybody in this phase to be vaccinated at the same time. Vaccinations will be available to groups in the following order. Right. So they say, OK, we have these we have phase one B, but not enough vaccines. So we're going to break down phase one B into subgroups, three different subgroups. Guys, why not? Why don't you just run down the list of priorities just to say, like, number one, healthcare workers caring for and directly with patients with COVID-19. Number two, healthcare workers administering the vaccine. Number three, long term care staff and residents. Number four, Anybody 75 years or older, regardless of health status or living situation. Number five, healthcare workers and frontline essential workers 50 years or older. By the way, the CDC defines frontline essential workers as first responders, like firefighters and police officers, corrections officers, food and agricultural workers, U.S. Postal Service workers, manufacturing workers, grocery store workers, public transit workers, and those who work in the education sector, like teachers and support staff members, as well as child care workers. And then next group is health care workers and frontline essential workers of any age. Okay, so those are those are the priorities. Now, if your priority is to pick up a new house in 2021 or to sell your existing house, then here's the name you need, Rowena Patton. 
Rowena Patton and her all-star powerhouse team, they get houses sold fast and for more money. It's what they do. She outsells 99% of the realtors in the state of North Carolina, and she's the only agent we called when we decided to buy our house. She's got homes in all price points, and she has... Uh, buyers already lined up. That's how she's able to get your house sold so fast, which is one of the things people uh, I'm not sure are really aware of all the time that when I say give her a call and then start packing, like I really mean it because she's going to get your house sold very quickly. All of a sudden, you're going to have a lot of showings and it's going to move. Okay. In this economy, in this market, uh, it is a seller's market. So if you've been contemplating a move, uh, maybe you want to, uh, downsize or maybe you have a growing family you want to get a bigger house either way give her a call 333-4483 mountainhomehunt.com is the website that's 333-4483 give her a call and as i said start packing so next up is phase two adults at high risk for exposure and at an increased risk of severe illness so here's i'm only on phase two you heard all of the list of people right but i'm only on phase two Classic Cooper, right? <laughs> this is classic Cooper administration stuff right here. Uh, create all of these multiple levels inside of the phases. So it's like, well, we only have, you know, four phases here, but we've got 17 bajillion sub phases. <laughs> uh, well, like, why don't I just, how about this? How about every resident of North Carolina is his own phase? You, me, we're all our own phase. And... <laughs> So we just we'll do like some sort of a like a draft lottery selection uh, process. Uh, anyway, so here's phase two. Group one, anyone 65 to 74 years old. Group two, anyone 16 to 64 years old with high risk medical conditions. Group three, anyone who's incarcerated or living in other close group living settings who's not already vaccinated. Group four essential workers who have not yet been vaccinated. Then phase three, college and university students, K-12 students age 16 and over, and younger children only will be vaccinated when the vaccine is approved for them. And then phase four, everybody who wants a safe and effective COVID-19 vaccination. Okay, so what don't you hear and what is what is what, what is not clear in this? Right, the whole plan. Yes, exactly. It's the whole <laughs> the whole plan is basically not very clear. Well, if you read through this list and you start thinking in terms of population cohorts, so you got the first group, 75 years and older. Let's just focus on I mean on, honestly, like if you look at who is dying from COVID, it is people in the older age groups, right? The older you are, the more deadly this is for you. Not that people who are younger can't get it and die from it, but the chances of that are very, very low. In fact, the chances, if you're under the age of 14, the chance of getting COVID and dying from it is literally one in a million, okay? Uh, so this, uh, this disease disproportionately impacts and kills the elderly. So ages 75 and older, they are in the first, uh, sorry, the second, sorry, the third Sorry, the fourth phase, phase 1B. <laughs> so 1A has three subphases. So then 1B would be the so would be the fourth phase. Anyway, anyone 75 or older. Okay, they are in 1B or the fourth group that gets serviced. All right. Who's what about under the age of 75? Well, the next time anybody is mentioned there that's not a healthcare worker, right? Just regular folks. Um 
you got to go down to phase two. Anyone 65 to 74. Okay, so now that's group one out of phase two. So now you're like six levels in. You're like six or seven sub-phases in. And that's when you see the 65 to 74 group. Then the very next sub-phase after that is 16 to 64. So it's everybody else, but if you have a high-risk medical condition. So someone who is age 63 they have no greater priority and they will actually not get the vaccine until the very last phase, phase four or phase 11, right? The very last phase. Someone who's 60 years old and doesn't have any you know, high risk medical conditions that increase the risk of severe disease, such as cancer, COPD, serious heart conditions, sickle cell disease, type two diabetes, okay? If you don't have any of these serious medical conditions and you're the age of, you know, 60, 61, 62, 63, you don't get the vaccine until dead last. Now, that doesn't make sense to me. But what do I know, right? I'm just a podcaster. But that doesn't make sense to me. It also doesn't make sense to Senate leader Phil Berger, who put out a press release about this yesterday, saying that this plan is just too complicated and it doesn't prioritize age enough. And... This is one of the things when you're trying to, and I agree on, on actually both counts here, it is too complicated. As You probably have de- deciphered this for yourself. Running through this distribution priority list, is, it's kind of ridiculous. Trying to figure out where you fall on that list. And you know what's going to happen is that the more complex you make it, the easier it's going to be for people to game the system, right? There's going to be people who come along and they're going to be like, oh, well, I'm this, I'm an essential worker, and I'm that. Like, are we expecting the hospitals to be, I don't know, checking people's income tax returns, their pay stubs or something, to find out that uh, they are, in fact, employed in an essential industry or something? Are we expecting them to divulge their personal medical histories? Or is it just going to be, yes, I'm in this group, and then, boom, you get the jab, right? Is that how that works? The more complex you make it, the easier it's going to be for people to have uh, ways around the system, loopholes, right? That's This is sort of the truism of all laws. The more laws you make, the easier it is for people to skirt them because now you've got all of these gray areas. Like when you say thou shalt not kill, <laughs> it's, pretty, it's pretty black and white right there, right? Uh, you start saying, well, except in this circumstance. Well, what about this other circumstance and this other circumstance, right? So vaccine distribution needs to be a it needs to be a simplified plan and uh, I don't think this checks that box so I, I I'm on uh, on team burger here um, and he says it doesn't prioritize age enough I would agree with that as well I think you should just do like for example he mentions the UK system other states are doing this as well which is you do anybody over the age of 80 first along with all frontline healthcare and Uh, The UK calls them social care workers. So if you work in the hospitals, you're working with COVID-19 people uh, and you're over the age of 80, all you guys go first, right? Then 75 and older, then 70 and older, then 65 and older. And then after 65 and older, then they they throw in the 16 to 64 with underlying health conditions, right? So that's sort of the same guidance. But then the next one is, 60 years and older, 55 years and older, 50 years and over. They just keep going down in five-year increments. So, like, this is the, like, I'm not going to get the vaccine until 
you know, way down the list. Seriously, like I, I would rather other people go and get it first that are at greater risk, I think, or are at greater risk uh, than me. I'm okay with that. I'm, I, and I do intend to get the vaccine, by the way. I'm not, you know, I'm not opposed to getting the vaccine. I'm not an anti-vaxxer. So um, I am happy to see other people go first and let's see if they start sprouting extra arms <laughs> or anything. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, but I do intend to get it. And uh, I, I do intend to get it later, much, much later, after a lot of other people have already gone ahead of me because they need it more than I do, I think. That's my own risk assessment right there. Um, but I think, yeah, uh, yeah, I, uh, oh, hang on. There was one other thing Berger said here. Let me go back. I was about to move on, but let me, let me back up. He says, here are some examples of the problems with Cooper's prioritization. He says, a healthy 21-year-old college student will get the vaccine before a 64-year-old, even though the 64-year-old has about a 100 times higher risk of death if infected. See, that's what I think needs to be the guiding principle here is that the age and the comor- uh, comorbidities, right, those need to be the guiding factors. But they're not, because it's government, and so and, and it's Democrats in charge of the government, and so, like, they're, they're, they're talking yesterday at the press conference about, you know, historical inequities in the healthcare system, and so, therefore, uh, you know, we, we're trying to, you know, address those now. Like, short of, like, withholding vaccines to white people. And in fact, somebody asked that a reporter from Spectrum News asked like, oh, I'm looking at who's getting the vaccines. And so far, it's a lot of, you know, white people. Yeah, well, I don't know why that is. But if you're targeting everybody in the uh, healthcare industry, maybe that's why. Right. Maybe if you targeted different industries, you would see a different ethnic and racial and gender demographic makeup. I don't know. Like, I bet when you start going into the schools and and stabbing all of the, with the needles, and vaccinating all of the teachers, you know what's going to happen to your demographics? Yeah, really white, really women. Like, that's what's going to (laughs) happen in the school systems. So uh, I I, I don't know. Like, you're you're looking at these numbers after the fact, and you're breaking it down by race and everything. Like, everyone's going to get the vaccine. Everyone's going to get the vaccine that wants the vaccine. Um, But nobody, yeah. Everybody's got an opinion about the priorities, I guess, right? So... Uh, including me, I have one. Um, I think it should be based on age. Oldest go first, and then if you have comorbidities, yeah, then then start piling those people in at the front. Absolutely. Um, the prioritization scheme, he says, involves four phases, multiple sub-phases, and then he calls them multiple sub-sub-phases. <laughs> the system places young, healthy college students and prisoners ahead of people in their early 60s. In fact, people in their early 60s are the last group to receive the vaccine under the proposed system. He's exactly right, by the way. It also places young, non-healthcare workers ahead of people in their early 70s. This doesn't make any sense. In North Carolina, he says nine college-aged adults have died from COVID-19. Nine. Okay? You know how many people have died between the ages of 50 to 64? 901. But college-age adults have a higher vaccine priority under this system. There are about half a million college students in the state, about the same number of people aged 60 to 64. The limited vaccine doses should go to the older and more at-risk group, not the younger group. Right. All things being equal, again, this is not, to, you know, we're not taking into account comorbidities. It's just strictly age. So all things being equal, a 25-year-old and a 55-year-old you're looking at those two people, the 55-year-old should get the vaccine first. They should, 
because they're at higher risk just because they're older. That's what we know about the, the virus. See, that's science, folks. Where are all the science people? It's interesting I didn't hear anybody say the science and data and facts. Oh, my. I didn't hear any of that at the press briefing for some reason. It's kind of weird how the mantra just gets forgotten when needed. Uh, next up, government here to help. Hang on. When the <laughs> Do you remember at the beginning of the pandemic and there was the run on uh, hand sanitizer? You couldn't find it anywhere and everybody was like, hand sanitizer, we need more hand sanitizer. Oh, and by the way, all the bars and distilleries and wineries, you were all shut down. And so what happened? Well, you had a lot of these distilleries that converted over and started making hand sanitizer, right? A lot of them stepped in to alleviate the shortage. The main ingredient in sanitizer is ethanol, which they're already in the business of making, although, you know, a little bit differently. <laughs> but uh, more than 800 distilleries, according to Reason.com, piece by Jacob Greer, more than 800 distilleries pivoted from spirits to sanitizer, offering it for sale, or in many cases, just donating it to the communities free of charge. Their prompt action helped ensure supplies of sanitizer when it was otherwise unobtainable. Meanwhile, at that time, the FDA was getting all involved, imposing requirements on top of the guidelines published by the World Health Organization for emergency production. The FDA mandate at that time was that all alcohol used in sanitizer had to be denatured first, making it undrinkable. <laughs> Which, <laughs> like, are you good? Really? You're going, you're going to, you're going to drink hand sanitizer? This created a bottleneck in the manufacturing process, which then raised costs uh, and slowed down all the production. This is from Reason.com. Producing sanitizer is actually viewed as a point of pride in the industry, in the distilling industry. It was a way that they were able to help their communities in a time of crisis. Re-emerge the FDA, slapping $14,000 fees on distilleries. The issue here is a provision of the CARES Act that Congress passed that reformed regulation of non-prescription drugs. And under this law, distilleries that made sanitizer have been classified as, quote, over-the-counter drug monograph facilities. And the CARES Act also enacted user fees on these facilities in order to fund the FDA's regulatory activities. So for small distillers, that means they're getting hit with end-of-year bills of $14,060 due on February 11th. It's the old Reagan line. I'm from the government and I'm here to help. Um, the, the industry says it's going to push back on this. They hope that the FDA has some discretion as to the applicability of this fee. And uh, they want to uh, they want the FDA, the FDA to exclude distilleries, most of which don't even produce the sanitizer anymore. They have no intention of going back to doing so. Uh, however, the FDA's website explicitly says that facilities that made sanitizer under the temporary COVID-19 policy, are not exempt from this new fee. So thanks, guys. Appreciate you saving all of the lives and everything. Now pay up. <laughs> Do you think they're going to be more or less likely to help out in the future with another crisis? Oh my gosh, here's a new strain of COVID-19. Oh my gosh, we need more hand sanitizer. Distilleries are going to be like, no, I'm not making that. 
I can't afford another $14,000. You guys almost bankrupted me with the last one. You know who else also did some um, hand sanitizer production? Grower's Hemp. Yeah, they because they've got a manufacturing process that where they, they, they control the whole system, the whole process, I should say, from the hemp seed all the way to the shelf where you get your CBD products. And uh, when the pandemic hit, they said, you know what, let's crank out some hand sanitizer. We can do that as well. I'm not sure if they've got nailed with the $14,000 tax bill. I'll have to ask them. Uh, but CBD oil, I take it before I go to bed. I sleep more deeply than I ever have before. People take it. I was uh, chatting with uh, a listener, and he said he uses it uh, for as an anti-inflammatory. Um, so what are you looking for? Have you ever tried a CBD product? If you haven't, please try Grower's Hemp Full Spectrum Hemp Extract. Add it to your daily routine. If you've tried CBD in the in the past and you haven't been satisfied, it might have been a low-quality product, okay? So that's why Grower's Hemp controls the whole process because they want top quality at great prices. You're supporting North Carolina farmers, while you are on your wellness journey. So what are you looking for? Better quality of life, immune system resilience, deeper sleep, lower tension. Add Grower's Hemp Full Spectrum Hemp Extract to your daily routine. Um, As always, GovCo requires me to say the following. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. The efficacy of these products has not been confirmed by FDA-approved research. These products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. And nothing I have said is meant as a substitute for or alternative to information from your healthcare provider. So please consult your healthcare professional about potential interactions or other possible complications before using any product. Go to growershemp.com, the website, and type in my name at checkout, Pete. And you'll get 20% off. You can also find their product on the shelves at the Broad River Hemp Company in Shelby, Medical Pharmacy in Locust, and the Durham Co-op. But you can get it 24-7 at growershemp.com. And again, Pete, promo code Pete for 20% off. From North Carolina farmers to your home, Growers Hemp is about the hemp and not the hype. Came across... Uh, longleafpolitics.com again. This is by Andrew Dunn. Andrew Dunn was a former reporter and a business reporter, and uh, he then started up Longleaf Politics, and uh, he actually was uh, on the communications staff for Lieutenant Governor Dan Forrest's campaign in his run for governor. And uh, now that that campaign is over, unsuccessfully, unfortunately, uh, he's now taken back up to writing. So, uh, and I've always enjoyed Andrew's work, and I'm going to get him on at the uh, in the in the new year. Uh, but I I saw a couple pieces that he had, and the the first one here was called "Rain in the Governor's Rain," and he says, "Just set aside for a minute the specific restrictions that Cooper has implemented, and ask yourself: Should one person have this much power? Should a governor, no matter how popular?" have this kind of control over everyone's day-to-day lives. And as the pandemic goes on, he says the answer is increasingly no. Not indefinitely, not completely. It's time, he says, to rewrite North Carolina's emergency powers law for our new reality. He says the source of this unlimited power that Cooper has taken is the Emergency Management Act. And I've talked a little bit about this uh, a couple, uh, well, about a week or so ago with Stanley County Commissioner Tommy Jordan. I spoke with Jessica Thompson from the Pacific Legal Foundation. Uh, they're suing the governor over some of his orders on bars. This is the the source of his authority, the Emergency Management Act. And the law sets up uh, disasters and emergencies, right? That's That, that was the point, is to, to delineate 
what powers he has in a disaster and an emergency. And a disaster lasts 60 days, roughly. Okay, so like that's usually, that's like kind of the, the defining uh, window here is disasters generally are only around for like two months and they allow for different types of relief money to go where they're needed. Um, the act also gives the governor or the General Assembly the ability to declare a state of emergency. And that remains in effect until whoever implemented it declares it to be over. It's a big difference. That's what we're under right now, this state of emergency, okay? This is not a, a disaster. Then you've heard that, you know, we, we're going to you know, ask the federal government to declare us a disaster, and then that frees up money and trucks can run and deliver fuel and all this other stuff. Um, but in an emergency, it's only over when he says it's over. Subsection A lists the things that the governor can do on his own, stuff like uh, directing law enforcement, firing public officials who are not carrying out their duties, um, and then the law goes into the powers, this is uh, subsection B, uh, goes into powers that the governor has with concurrence of the Council of State. And you'll recall that's what Lieutenant Governor Dan Forrest sued over was that Roy Cooper had done things out south, uh, outside the bounds of subsection B. Things like mandatory evacuations, rationing, price freezing, regulating traffic, controlling public gatherings... That's exactly what he's doing right now. But then there is subsection C. And I'm not going to read it. He's got it uh, posted in this piece here. Uh, but subsection C says that if the governor believes that local governments cannot handle the emergency, then the governor can impose any restrictions, controls, or mandates he wants. Now, there's no oversight here. There's no uh, justification required. There's no expiration of the order required. Nothing. The powers are complete. And they last as long as the governor decides he wants them. And he points out, Andrew Dunn points out that this is not his interpretation here. This is what the state court said of this law in August. I believe it was the lawsuit that Dan Forrest filed. So subsection C, we should note, is new. It was added in 2012. The GOP had just taken over the General Assembly in 2011. But Governor Bev Perdue was still the governor. And um, in 2012, there's a representative named Greer Martin, Democrat from Wake County. He ran this bill, this this amendment, and it passed. I don't know any other details about it. It passed. And then Bev Perdue signed it into law. Earlier versions of the law did not include subsection C. Okay. Instead, the governor had to go to the Council of State to exercise the broadest reach of emergency powers. Going back to the Council of State to get concurrence, that would be a good step. But Andrew Dunn says there's a simpler, more elegant solution, which is to put an end date on states of emergency and then require the General Assembly to sign off on extending it. So from now on, a disaster, 60 days, state of emergency, 30 days. And if you want to go longer than 30 days, then you've got to go back to the legislature to get approval. I think uh, this will meet your approval. Old Grouch's military surplus. Tons of real U.S. military surplus. Camouflage stuff, obviously. A bunch of cold weather gear. He's got ammo cans, which are really cool um, for storage. He's got them in all sizes, so you can, you know, put them in your work vehicle. Uh, you, you store them in your uh, in your shed, your garage. Um, 
great for you know tools and obviously ammo. Um, also, you want an emergency kit for your car, like warm clothing, blankets, emergency space blankets. You know, like they look like the tinfoil ones. You know, um, emergency rations. You can even leave these in your vehicle. Uh, and they're not going to be harmed by the heat or the cold. So God forbid you are, you know, in your vehicle when, you know, you slide off the road or you just maybe run out of gas in the middle of nowhere. You know, stuff like that happens. If you're not prepared, it becomes way worse. So uh, why not take steps now? Be prepared. Old Grouch can help you with that. Tim at Old Grouch's Military Surplus. He loves helping people with this stuff. So go on into the stories on Main Street in downtown Clyde. Shops open Monday through Saturday. It's across the street from the anti-aircraft gun. And, of course, uh, 24-7 at oldgrouch.com. And, of course, be sure to tell him that you heard it here on the show. Um, will this emergency end? This is a question that Andrew Dunn is asking for 2021. Will Cooper's emergency end this year? And I want to immediately say, oh, of course it will. But as I stop and think about it, I got to wonder, will it, though? Will it really? I'm not so sure. I'm not. He and, and he makes a great point. He says, I have a sinking feeling that Governor Roy Cooper is not going to lift the state of emergency until he can host his mission accomplished press conference. I think that's exactly right. I think he's going to want to declare victory of some kind, open everything back up, and then maybe like at the same press conference announce that he's going to run for U.S. Senate. <laughs> or president. I don't want to limit the guy. I, I think this is I, I, I think this is in the cards for him. I don't know. But that's my that's my expectation. Um, which will come first, Dunn asks. Governor Cooper ceding his power or the General Assembly getting the backbone to take it from him? It's a good question. Here are some other questions for 2021 Andrew Dunn uh, outlines. Will COVID vaccines get to people who need them? Will Governor Cooper sign a budget? This was interesting because, uh, you know, we're still operating off of 2018's budget for the most part because he vetoed uh, like every budget he's ever gotten. And so we're still running on these um, sort of a continuation budget. And uh, he says, I don't see Cooper vetoing the budget based on his insistence on expanding Medicaid, as he has done in the past. But I do see him wielding the veto stamp over something related to covid. That's a, that's a pretty good guess. The legislature will want to save money in the rainy day fund if possible. The governor is going to want to spend it immediately. And my guess is North Carolina will be stuck with a round of mini budgets yet again. Yeah, that's. Because I don't think he can do the veto over Medicaid yet again, especially if it's COVID, right? If he's still under the emergency uh, uh, act and he's still, you know, locking people down and all of this and the General Assembly comes forward with its budget and it doesn't have Medicaid expansion, but it has all this COVID relief stuff in there. I don't think he can politically veto that budget based on Medicaid. But I think Andrew Dunn is right that he could veto it if the legislature doesn't put enough money into these COVID response uh, measures, then the governor could say, you guys don't care about the COVID victims, and he'd veto it over that. Um, another question for 2021, how many jobs are going to be gone forever? North Carolina is still roughly 200,000 jobs shy of where we were at this point last year. Half of that is in the hospitality industry, which got pummeled. Uh, another question, he says, will schools reopen this fall? Another question, who gets drawn into an unfriendly district? 
This is interesting, too, because, yes, we get redistricting this year. Oh, my gosh, it's going to be so much fun. It's redistricting time again this spring, and North Carolina still appears in line for a 14th congressional district. Yep, we're getting another congressional seat. This means everybody's lines are going to get redrawn to some extent, and there's a good chance uh, that somebody's electoral prospects are going to be significantly harmed. Also, uh, I predict on this that you're going to have Democrats demanding that the state be evenly split. Seven seats Republican, seven seats Democrat. I suspect that's where they're going to go. Uh, and uh, finally, can North Carolina recover from our culture of fear? I thought this was actually the most profound question for 2021, because I'm kind of concerned about this. He says, and he says this worries him more than any other as well, because for a year, he says, we've, be, we've been conditioned to fear contact with other people. We've been told to stay in our homes, stay away from people we don't live with, avoid church and playgrounds and school. Our society was already becoming impersonal. He says, how well do you know your neighbors, right? As our state slowly returns to normal, how will our strained communities repair themselves? Will our kids be allowed to play together? Will our pews fill back up? Once lost, can the personal touches of daily life be restored? It's a great question. I worry about the the lasting psychological harm being done to generations of people right now. Um, the way, I mean, I've seen these videos where people are screaming at each other in stores because they're not wearing masks and they're getting confrontational over it. And look, I, I think I said this a couple of weeks ago, Christy and I were out one day and we're, we, when we go out, we wear the masks and <clears throat> we, you know, we, we try to make other people feel comfortable. You know, we're not trying to, uh, you know, I wear the mask and get all up in people's face and stuff. And, but, but my, but my view on the masks is like, very laissez-faire, okay? If you want to wear them, fine. If you don't want to wear them, fine. Like, I'm not going to dictate to you to wear them. But even I, when I'm walking through the the aisles and stuff, even I look at people without a mask, and the first thing in my head is like, why aren't they wearing a mask? And then I catch myself, and I'm like, and I hate the fact that my mind even goes there. And I'm one who's ambivalent about it. Can you imagine the true believers? <laughs> like, they... And by the way, it goes both ways. You know, the people without the masks, they're looking at ones with the masks, and they're like, oh, you sheeple. Like this, I'm just worried about that kind of mindset and how it may infect all other areas of our lives. Um, Let me shift gears here. This is a story AP Dillon did at North State Journal. North Carolina holds the dubious distinction of leading the nation in untested rape kits which is weird because I thought the Attorney General Josh Stein just ran a campaign saying that he had cleared all of the rape kits, that he had he'd caught us all up. And that was weird because his predecessor, Roy Cooper, had claimed that he had cleared the rape kit backlog. But apparently, I don't know, we're still the worst in America. Yeah. Um, she says, a report by the state's attorney general shows some progress, though, in clearing this backlog that was already solved, supposedly, two times before. Attorney General Josh Stein's December 10th press release states 2,169 kits have been tested, but 4,739 are currently uh, with the vendor lab for testing or preparing to ship to the vendor. Um, from the 2,169 tested kits... About a third of them have been entered into the state and national databases. Josh Stein's office says 40% of the entered cases had a hit to a known person in the database or to another case. So there's there's that 
part of it. And he's going to come to the legislature in the budget process and ask for more money because the price of uh, clearing these kits has doubled. Um, and so, or almost doubled, it's nearly, uh, it's up at 80%. And so I'm sure he's going to ask the General Assembly for more money uh, to uh, to clear these as well to hire additional DNA scientists. Um, but he also says that he wants to update, he wants the, the General Assembly to update DNA collection requirements for individuals arrested for violent crimes against women. He says there are two recent arrests of decades-old alleged serial rapists in Fayetteville, and he wants to have offender DNA collected and uploaded to the state DNA database. So if you, if it's just, I don't say just an assault, but not like a sexual assault, but any kind of an assault on a female would, would then allow them to draw your DNA and put it into the database. And then if you ever commit a sexual assault of a female, they would be able to, uh, to identify you. So that might come up in this general assembly session. We shall see. Um, what else? Oh, Chief Justice Sherry Beasley. She lost. She lost her reelection bid, and uh, Paul Newby won. He is an associate Supreme Court Chief Justice, or a Supreme Court Justice, and he's a Republican. He's actually the more experienced of the two, and, uh, you know, just historically, precedent-wise, he should have been named the Chief Justice when the previous Chief Justice resigned to go become a school chancellor in Virginia. Um, like Newby was saying like, Hey, I'm the one with the most experience here. I'm, I have the longevity. I should be the one promoted up to chief justice, but because he's a Republican and Cooper's a Democrat, Cooper named Sherry Beasley to be chief justice. Cooper and the Democrats, the ones who were oh so concerned about, you know, the politicization of the judiciary. They were very, very concerned that simply telling people who's a Republican and who's a Democrat on the ballot, that that was going to create a partisan judicial branch. Meanwhile, he just keeps packing the courts with <laughs> with Democrats, which is what he did yesterday. As I mentioned yesterday, he uh, named Darren Jackson to the Court of Appeals. I mean, Darren Jackson's a lawyer, but he's been the House Minority Leader in the House of Representatives for Democrats. He's a he's a partisan politician, but he's going to be on the Court of Appeals now. Wonderful, North Carolina. So there's this piece in um, this is an op-ed. I think this was the News and Observer piece written by Virginia Summy, who's a Ph.D., a historian and faculty fellow in the Lloyd International Honors College at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro. And this published uh, two days ago or so, three days ago, and um, just awful. I can't believe they actually published this piece, but then again, I kind of can <laughs> because it's, yeah, yeah. Headline, in Chief Justice Beasley's loss, race again played a troubling role. So the reason why Sherry Beasley lost the race by, what was it, like 400 votes or something? The reason why she lost is because North Carolinians are racist. Yeah, this is such an intellectually lazy and dishonest argument to make. 
We'll kind of go through that in a minute. First, let me tell you about general equipment rental, okay? If you've got a job that needs to get done, but you don't know uh, what tool you need to get the job done, the first thing you're going to do probably is go to YouTube or Google it, right? And then once you find out what tool it is and you're like, I don't have that tool, I don't even know what that thing looks like or how to pronounce it, how to use it, well, go to general equipment rental and they will walk you through all of that. They've got the tools and they got the know-how to how to use the tools. And they they probably know how to pronounce the name. It's a good bet. <laughs> so, like really some of these tools I don't know I, I don't know the pronunciations. Anyway, they've got all tools of all sizes for big projects and little ones whether you're trying to uh, you know make a driveway on your land or you just need to cut some tile for a backsplash. They've got you covered with all of the tools. You rent the tool from them. They'll show you how to use it. You use it, you get the job done, you get it done fast and you get it done right and then you bring the tool back to them. And you don't have to worry about storing it. That's the worst thing. Like I, like I bought a tool once, and um, I never used it except for that one time. And it's kind of like I'm looking at this thing. It was this, you know, one of those little. Um, I don't know what the, it's. I think they called it the mouse. It's like a sander kind of a deal. And I used it once, and I thought, you know, of course, when I bought it, I was like, I'm going to do everything with this. I used it one time, and I was like, eh. And then I never used it again. And then every time I saw it on the workbench, I was like, ah. Oh spent money on that thing and I never get to use it anymore. I have no need for it. So like I would have just rented that for the one job I needed it for. Go to General Equipment Rental in Weaverville. They're at the intersection of Merriman Avenue and Reams Creek Road. They're family owned and operated, have been for three generations, uh, and uh, they support the show. They wanted to advertise to talk to you. And so I encourage you to uh, to patronize their business and let them know that you heard the ad here on the on the show. So whatever the project, General Equipment Rental has got the tool that you need. They are also your official licensed Husqvarna and Honda outdoor power equipment sales and service provider. And uh, they also do equipment service and repair. So go to General Equipment Rental in Weaverville or go to their website, generalrents.com, and think outside your toolbox. All right, so this op-ed by Virginia Summy in the News and Observer, she says, North Carolina voters denied a black woman an electoral victory yet again. Note the language here. She's implying that it's Sherry Beasley's uh, seat, right? That she was denied this victory somehow. Not that she was, not, not that she lost, right? It wasn't her fault, but she was denied. Like she's the victim here. And that all the voters did this to her and that all the voters did this to her solely because of the color of her skin. Now, um, and she points out in this piece that the last time an African-American woman uh, ran for the chief justice uh, position was back in 1974. And the election uh, was uh, between Alreda Alexander and she lost to James Newcomb. Alexander was the first African-American woman to graduate from Columbia Law and the first to practice at law in North Carolina. And she lost the GOP primary to a guy named James Newcomb, a white fire extinguisher salesman without a college degree. And the author here of the piece, Dr. Summy, says, Now, Newby, Paul Newby, this time around, is undoubtedly qualified for the position. Oh, well, thank goodness. He's just he's just the guy on the Supreme Court with the most experience. But Newby remains a beneficiary of the same forces that defeated Judge Elrita Alexander. The 1974 election 
came during a transitional time in North Carolina politics, and the Supreme Court race combined with Nixon's Southern strategy solidified the GOP as one antagonistic towards civil rights issues. Throughout his tenure on the court, like, this is such a stretch. This is amazing. Somebody actually, like, this is, of course, an academic, right? Like, I'm sure this sounded fantastic when she talked about it at the faculty Zoom meeting. Because um, you can't say faculty lounge because they're not meeting in person any longer. See that? I'm adapting. Anyway, when Beasley was sworn in as the chief justice after she was appointed to it, Republican Senate leader Phil Berger criticized the move, citing decades-old precedent as the reason why newbie should have been appointed instead. In my opinion, she says, Berger and the Republicans preferred a chief justice who reflected their politics and demographics, that of a conservative white male. This, what a profound misunderstanding of conservatism and Republicans. Do you understand that black conservatives and Republicans are beloved in the GOP? <laughs> they love them. Really? Because... And the left sees them as like, oh, you guys are just, you know, they're just using you. Like, no, they they love the fact that their message has broken through. There's nothing about limited government that applies only to one race. It actually should apply more so to minority races. Um, this prompted a response from Dallas Woodhouse on Twitter, who is the former executive director of the North Carolina GOP, who called it the worst possible take on any political contest this year and is itself racist. He called it disgraceful that it was even printed. He said, first of all, it's unfair to Justice Beasley, uh, who was judged on her merits. Now, some of that included her stances that closed the entire court system, labeling the entire system as racist. Some praised her, but others criticized her. She was judged on her high-profile positions. It's racist to make it only about her skin color, and racist and unfair to claim that the extremely highly qualified Paul Newby did not win based on his own merits in campaign. Further, the election results refute this nonsense. Democrats lost three state Supreme Court seats. Phil Berger beat another white candidate by 71,000 votes. Tamara Berenger beat another white candidate by 130,000 votes. Newby only beat Beasley by 400. If race mattered, it was actually a plus for her. Context. That's a wrap for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. Remember, please subscribe to the podcast and uh, maybe become a patron of the program. I appreciate it. Uh, Again, thanks for the support. Thank you for listening. We'll talk with you later. And uh, don't break anything while I'm gone.